Hello, everyone. I'm Carlin Bowman of the American Enterprise Institute, and I would like to welcome you to the Bradley Lectures podcast. Our regular host, Tal Fortgang, isn't here with us today, but nonetheless, we have a lecture we're eager to share with you. But first, some background. In September 1989, AEI introduced an ambitious lecture program called the Bradley Lecture Series, designed to enrich debate in the Washington policy community. Over the years, many distinguished academics, lawyers, and others spoke in the series. As important and impressive as the lectures themselves were, however, the series also attracted a distinguished live audience that grew over time, individuals interested in serious discussions by serious scholars. Early on, at one of the lectures, I met Judge Stephen Williams, who had been appointed by President Reagan to serve on the nation's second highest court. Judge Williams not only attended most of the lectures, riding his bike from the court to AEI, but he also gave one of the lectures himself. His interests were remarkably wide-ranging. He wrote an AEI book on energy policy and contributed to AEI's journal, Regulation. He was fascinated by developments in Russia at the end of the 19th century and wrote several books on the subject. This modest, delightful man was a cherished friend to many at AEI, and especially to AEI's former president, Chris DeMuth. We mourn his recent death from coronavirus, and we are delighted to reprise his lecture. Let me now turn things over to my AEI colleague, Adam White, who will discuss Judge Williams' jurisprudence. Thanks, Carlin. Like so many people at AEI and in the Washington legal community, I had the pleasure and really the honor of getting to know Judge Williams a little bit. And it's a shame that it's moments like these, his passing, that we sort of step back and, and realize just the sheer breadth and depth of his thought, his insights, his wisdom. And also, as we see in this Bradley lecture, just his joy of life. He was a delightful person to be around. And so it's a shame that we have this occasion to bring attention to his lecture. But in light of his passing, I'm so glad that AEI is re-releasing this lecture. President Reagan appointed him to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in 1986. And for those who aren't familiar, the D.C. Circuit is generally thought of as the second highest court in the land, given that it gets so many constitutional cases and so many cases involving political fights and regulatory issues that really are sort of the core of, of modern governance. And Judge Williams' work on the court exemplified that. I've been going back through some of his old opinions recently. And he had a few constitutional cases that were just really fascinating. One that administrative lawyers like me know best is his opinion in 1999 in a case called American Trucking versus EPA. It was a complicated dispute about the Clean Air Act, but at its core, first and foremost, it was a challenge about the Constitution's grant of legislative power to Congress and the extent to which Congress can delegate powers to agencies. Judge Williams wrote part of the majority opinion in that case, and he focused on the delegation issues and said that the Clean Air Act's grant of regulatory authority to the EPA was so sweeping, so unlimited, that it constituted a delegation of Congress's legislative power to the agency, that that's too much and that it needs to be stopped. Judge Williams and his colleagues' opinion in that case was later reversed by the Supreme Court in an important opinion by Justice Scalia, one another former alumnus of AEI himself. But Judge Williams and his colleagues really challenged the Supreme Court and all of us to think about what the Constitution means when it vests the legislative power in Congress, not the rest of government. His opinion also highlighted the real dangers of granting too much power to an agency rather than requiring Congress itself 
to make difficult choices of law and policy. Now, another major case that Judge Williams was involved in, also involving constitutional structure, it had a pretty bland name. It was called In Ray Sealed Case from 1987. Listeners might better recall it as the Oliver North case. This was the independent counsel investigation regarding Colonel North and his involvement in the Iran-Contra scandal. Judge Williams' opinion in that case, it didn't strike down any laws, but it did highlight the dangers of giving too much independence to officers within the executive branch who either aren't the head of an agency or who aren't appointed with full Senate confirmation the way that the independent counsel was. Judge Williams avoided the constitutional problem or sort of helped to avoid the constitutional problem by construing the statute narrowly to avoid some of these constitutional pitfalls. And that really is a hallmark of both this case and the other case I mentioned, the Clean Air Act case. He really wasn't in the business of striking down statutes in this case, but he said it's important for judges to interpret statutes in a way that avoid these constitutional problems. That's an important principle today as Congress the courts and the agencies continue to grapple with these broad grants of powers to agencies. Now, what Williams might have been most famous for, though, was his regulatory cases. He was a law professor for nearly 20 years before joining the court, a law professor specializing in energy law. And his opinions on energy regulation, environmental regulation, telecommunications, and everything else the D.C. Circuit grapples with, it was amazing. He actually made them interesting to read. I mean, I'm biased here. I was an energy lawyer before I became an academic myself. And I just loved his opinions on energy regulation. He wrote an incredibly important opinion in the late 1980s, and he continued to write opinions through the 90s as the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission undertook this generational effort to really change the way that energy infrastructure is regulated, the way our markets work, trying to introduce more market competition into our energy industry. These are incredibly important cases. And near the end of his career, although we didn't know it at the time, in 2016, He wrote an opinion in a case called U.S. Telecom Association versus FCC. This was the net neutrality case. And he wrote this really impressive opinion. I encourage our listeners to look it up, where he raised major questions about the way that the FCC had radically changed policy, upending all sorts of settled expectations about how the internet would be regulated, how internet companies would operate. And he also raised profound questions about the nature of the FCC's regulation. I was actually in the room during oral arguments when he was raising a lot of these questions, and it was just classic Williams. He raised these really deep and challenging questions, but in such a light way. He really wasn't somebody who wore this sort of technocratic knowledge heavily. He didn't show it off. He just found a way to translate these really complicated issues into thoughtful, interesting questions. Now, in addition to all that, he wrote a lot. He wrote books. Carlin already mentioned the book that he wrote for us in 1985 on on the natural gas markets. He wrote just a wide variety of law review articles on technical issues and and broader issues. A lot of them are summarized or, or listed, at least, on his Wikipedia page. So look those up. What's really interesting is his last two books, He wrote in 2006 a book titled Liberal Reform in an Illiberal Regime, the Creation of Private Property in Russia in the Beginning of the 20th Century, where he thought through what was happening in Russian law and in Russian life in the run-up to the, the communist revolution. About a decade later, in 2017, he published a book titled The Reformer, How One Liberal Fought to Preempt the Russian Revolution. This is the story of Vasily Maklikov a Russian lawyer, legislator, and public intellectual. 
it's a fascinating story the way he turned to this subject late in life. I think I read somewhere that he learned Russian, the Russian language in his 60s in order to do this research, which tells you a lot about the kind of person Judge Williams was. But in these books, they followed upon his AEI Bradley lecture. They tie together so much of what made Judge Williams such an impressive person and such a delightful person. His focus on constitutional governance, his focus on the rule of law, both in process and in substance, talking about just the nature of property ownership and its importance for society. His focus on liberal democracy and the challenges of reform. That really marked his entire career. It certainly is all bound up in his Bradley lecture. And so I hope people enjoy it, and I hope it inspires them to look at the other things that he wrote and he did. Chris told you that my topic is radical reform, uh, and I think a, a talk with the word reform in the title must at least make a bow to Macaulay. Macaulay said, reform? Don't speak to me of reform, sir. Things are bad enough as they are. I'll also say a, a little word about the background of my interest. I was, I was brought up in a good Cold Warrior family, uh, and as such, we saw the Russians as communism's uh, first and in one ma- many ways their principal victims. Um, so that when the Soviet Union fell, I was a natural sucker for various uh, rule of law programs in Russia and the former Soviet Union. Um, and have it's made me think about these issues. Most of my examples are actually drawn from Russia, uh, or the former Soviet Union. Um, but I think the principles that I'm going to try to work through uh, are applicable to many other countries uh, that present the problem of uh, what is clearly a, a non-liberal democracy trying to move to one. One important set of background assumptions, what do I mean by liberal democracy, which I'll sometimes call market democracy, to focus on that aspect of it. First, democracy, the enactment of laws through representative bodies, free speech, private property, most resource allocation issues determined by individual fir- individuals and firms acting in free markets, the rule of law, and I see at least four important components there. First, the idea that as against the government, the uh, citizen or firm can get a hearing in court before a largely disinterested judge on whether the statute or rule invoked against him by the government, let's say by the executive branch, really applies and what that statute or rule really means. Second, citizens have recourse to impartial courts to resolve with reasonable speed disputes they have with other citizens over property, contract, and such matters. Third, the laws have some reasonable degree of clarity so that people can adjust their conduct to them. And fourth, judgments are actually enforced. Final point, final sort of background point, and that is I'll talk as if the liberal democracy or a rule of law society uh, were an established thing, uh, sort of a discrete uh, object out there uh, that we had, that we have now. Uh, Of course, There are a lot of ways in which the rule of law uh, has not historically been perfect, and there are ways in which ways some of those issues are getting better, some are getting worse. That whole area is beyond the scope of my talk. I think basically 
the problems confronted by the sort of society that I'm talking about, above all the post-communist societies, are qualitatively different from simply the issues of making our society or England better. So what are the impediments to a country's rapid evolution into a liberal democracy? And I've tried to break it down into three types, interest groups, collective action problems, and what I'll loosely call culture, but I'll talk about that because it's quite controversial in some ways. Um, There are obviously a lot of interest groups that benefit from the status quo in this sort of pre-reform society. Uh, Think of the people who run state oil and gas monopolies. Um, Think of the government officials who are able to exercise control over private firms and are able to use that control to extract bribes and uh, less crude benefits. Uh, all these, all the beneficiaries of the process by which such sweetheart deals are made uh, are beneficiaries of the pre-reform status quo. Uh, and the, the forms of these relationships are innumerable. Just mention a few, contracting, licensing, taxation, even criminal law enforcement. Uh, so that uh, this is a, a very large block of people uh, who have interests staked on continuation of the status quo. Now, that is something of an oversimplification, is it not? Because, after all, if reform makes the pie bigger, uh, all these participants in the current system uh, can improve their lot. If you think of the uh, bureaucrats, post-reform, we could have fewer bureaucrats but pay the remaining ones better, and the ones who are no longer bureaucrats could find, one hopes, lucrative jobs in private industry. What about the firms? They obviously have considerable advantages from ending the system. Uh, In the first place, they have to pay the bribes, uh, and it would be nice to be spared that expense. Uh, In the second place, they're always at the risk of being subjected to someone else's uh, maneuver, someone else securing a bureaucrat on his side and bringing the weight of uh, the state down against him. So he would obviously benefit. But I think it's clear that the the trouble with these is that they assume that that people would make uh, perhaps optimistic estimates uh, about the post-reform era. The fact that the pie is bigger, so that these people could all be doing better, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that each each of them would, and so they're asked to move from a from the current more or less stable situation uh, to one which is at least dicey for them. Second set of problems is collective action problems, and here I'm talking about the hazards of being a pioneer in a nation's move to the rule of law. A person's conduct is likely to be heavily influenced by his belief as to how other people in the system are going to react, how they'll, how they'll behave. If dishonesty and corruption have been widespread, then even the most honest person, perhaps especially the most honest person, uh, will be unwilling to risk values that depend upon the honesty of others or depend on courts to uh, sanction dishonesty. And of courts and officials are often used through bribes or connections to stamp out competition, 
competition at the, at the behest of a particular uh, operator, uh, then people contemplating investment in productive enterprise are certainly going to think more uh, about whether they should think more carefully about whether they should hazard the game. Third, culture, culture, uh, or what I prefer to call habits of mind, some culture conjures up whether you like the theater or rock, uh, but I, it's, it's not that kind of culture that I'm interested in. And I see culture or habits of mind as having two aspects. First is normative, how I evaluate people's behavior, my own and others. Uh, and the second relates to practice, thinking independently, seeking to engage others in common enterprises, being able to engage in the articulation and compromise necessary for effective association. These are all practices. It, it doesn't do much merely to think well of them uh, unless you carry them out, and carrying them out requires practice. Unfortunately, habits of mind that are adaptive for one situation may not be adaptive for another. Some of the habits that work where society as a whole is not a liberal democracy or in a subculture whose members are isolated from a society that otherwise is, uh, will not necessarily work, in fact, will not, uh, work in a society that is pervasively a liberal democracy. Take instances where incentives for purely individual effort, such as hard work, ingenuity, and risk-taking, are deadened. An example, those living in a commune, the sort that prevailed between nominal emancipation in 1861 uh, and the revolution, were in a system where essentially uh, the fruits of efforts, ingenuity, and hard work uh, were largely socialized. So they, it was a very substantial disincentive to do those things. On top of that, uh, if you live in such a system where there's not a connection between your positive effort and benefits for you, the whole appraisal that you may give to other people's prosperity is going to be affected. One scholar of the peasant in the late imperial era says, they commonly believed that successful peasants more than likely achieved their wealth through usurious and unfair practices. So that's not a, not a good environment to go into uh, to expect uh, the sort of effort needed in a liberal democracy. Second, and I think a greater problem, uh, is the conditions that don't reward or even penalize the sort of relationships that are valuable, in fact, essential in a liberal market. If you grow, if you live in, in a totalitarian system where assembling for any independent purpose is regarded as evidence of treason, you won't have much experience of self-organizing to get things done, and you won't have capacity to do so. Contrast that with the tendency to spontaneous association that Tuckville so famously found uh, among Americans. Even in states where spontaneous association hasn't been a crime, uh, there's a warping of social capital. In the patrimonial state, success is heavily dependent on having good relationship with one or a few higher-ups. You get benefits if you're in a favor-exchanging relationship with some boss or his subordinate. Sicily, at least as depicted by Robert Putnam, is such a society. In such a state, clearly, there's no premium, indeed quite a discount, on being able to organize independently. I'm not saying that there isn't social capital in a totalitarian or patrimonial state. 
but it is going to be built up in largely vertical relationships. There's a story, and again, I'm afraid I'm drawing on a Russian example, uh, and this is from the Stalin period, of two neighbors in a dispute over a flower box. They, they're in a, an apartment house, and the one in the upper floor thinks it nice to put a little flower box out on his window. But the occupant of the apartment below thinks that's a terrible idea. I don't know why. Uh, hazard, pure aesthetics, whatever. Anyway, he objects. Uh, instead of talking about it or doing any of the things that normal people uh, or people in a normal society would do, they do what, in fact, what would be normal there, which is go to the people uh, higher up in the system uh, with whom they have some connection seeking relief. And this particular dispute went up to Kalinin, who was the president of the USSR. Now, of course, Kalinin's role was, was largely symbolic anyway, so the, the opportunity cost of his spending his time on this particular endeavor was not great, but still. Besides that sort of vertical relationship, uh, there is, there appear to be, appears to be horizontal networking in a place like the Soviet Union. Apparently is very, has been very close bonding, uh, in sort of a narrowly defined group in a work collective. Um, but none of those relationships don't add up to very much in terms of what one hopes for in a liberal democracy uh, because they aren't broad enough or active enough to reach beyond the core group itself to affect anything very much except consolation for the people in the group. To the extent they do reach beyond, a lot of it is simply for, for zero-sum activities, deciding who will get the limited supply of goods at a store or deciding who will get a plum job. But none of that brings new resources into play or arranges for a more competent use of existing resources. Uh, on N- NPR, source for, to me, a wonderful example of a viewpoint on the rule of law in Russia, they interviewed the, Rus- interviewed the Russian translator of the Harry Potter books, And the translator said of the second volume that it carried the message that rulers should not follow the law. The good lady went on to say, Russia wouldn't be here if people followed the law, Uh, which has a lot of truth in in many complicated ways. Uh, And it's certainly true in the sense that the planned economy would have produced disaster long sooner if there hadn't been devices for getting around the plan. Um, But again, the, the... the things that we think of as useful in a different context uh, are not useful or counterproductive as viewed from an individual perspective. I'll just say a brief word about culture. Um, when I started sort of looking into this, I was very tempted to characterize a lot of things as culture. Um, but then I read a number of things, and I may say my son is very fierce uh, that that's a bad way to talk about it. Uh, and so I'll try to try to show you how I've, I've tried to work. It, it seems to me the, the, the great objection to consideration of culture uh, is that it's very hard to measure, and one's very likely to get into some sort of circular description in which people are the way they are because of the way they are, um, which is which is obviously fruitless. But but it is, certainly should be borne in mind that the importance of a phenomenon is not necessarily related to its measurability. So the, the problems of measurement should not uh, silence us on the subject. 
Second thing is that common sense certainly suggests that some things which can be characterized as culture are very important. Suppose you're brought up in a Japanese-speaking household and have little occasion to distinguish between L and R, and then you're forced to make that distinction as you struggle to learn English. You have great difficulty. If so, for language, why not for all kinds of activities? As Aristotle points out, we learn to do, learn to do good by actually doing good, and uh, we learn these habits of good behavior by doing them. So the, not having done them uh, certainly is likely to uh, make us less likely to be able to do them well. Finally, I think the habits of mind that I'm interested in, the ones I've been talking about, are ones that to some substantial extent are measurable. Robert Putnam has really made a living at uh, measuring them uh, with a degree of success that people fight over. But nonetheless, there are measurable things in terms of the way people actually behave uh, so, that, so that the culture that I'm speaking of, I think uh, it's reasonable to speak of. All that said, I don't want to overdo the, uh, the notion of habits of mind. Again, taking my friend, the Russian peasant, uh, I've just been reading a book which depicts the peasant in the post-revolutionary period uh, as developing to the extent left alone by the government, which of course was nowhere near as much as it should have been, developing uh, the peasant view of what suitable rights are in land. And uh, so I think there's reason to believe that in the right environment, uh, people can move very quickly away from unsound habits uh, to ones that are, are sound. Radical reform of a nation, though, obviously creates a, a much tougher case, uh, and I'll try to uh, try to approach it in terms of the sources of reform, which I see as threefold. One, reform from above, second, reform from below, and third, the role of external parties such as us. Um, first, reform from above. Our media tend to treat this as the is really the only thing, so that the outcome of an election and whether a person labeled a reformer wins uh, is a subject of great fascination in the media. And I, and I don't want to scoff at it. It is important. It is much different to have a Yeltsin at top than to have a Brezhnev at the top. Uh, but alone, it's not likely to be enough. The interest groups that profit from the status quo are going to resist. Uh, and even to the extent that their resistance is not fully successful, uh, they're virtually sure to warp the reform process. Uh, and this seems to me the story of what is called nomenclatura privatization. Interest groups in Russia, which were doing well through their effective control of state assets, uh, demanding that the, pri- the form privatization take should actually be delivery of those assets to themselves. You may be tempted because of the resistance of these groups to wish the opposition away, to have a reformer president or prime minister who could just decree reform. But of course, if you had a president or prime minister who could just decree reform, you wouldn't be in a liberal democracy. So the, uh, that sort of solution is unavailable. Even assuming you get formal legal change of the sort you're looking for, it still won't yield fully the desired results. 
without some solution to the collective action problem that I talked about, uh, and also without uh, an improvement of the uh, change in the habits of mind of people. And that doesn't, although changes in the law obviously will help to bring that about, uh, they don't bring it about automatically. Now to take a brief detour on the subject of corruption, and particularly in connection with courts. Corruption is obviously a negation of the rule of law. And part of the answer to that is a police work issue, on which I'm afraid my training as a judge gives me no, nothing to add. Uh, part of it, though, relates to the opportunities for corruption. And obviously, government policy can proliferate opportunities for corruption by, for example, creating permit requirements and other regulatory obstacles, particularly ones that fly in the face of ordinary human expectations. So reducing those must be part of any reform program. Also, equally surely, it will attract strong resistance from the people who are benefiting from those processes. Much of the criticism of the Russian reform in the last decade depicts the process uh, as one of free market zeal run amok with crazy-eyed free marketers recklessly doing away with what the commentator will call regulatory protections. Uh, if the commentator refers to the failure to assure the honest enforcement of basic rules of contract and property and the prevention of fraud, uh, then the criticism is sound. Before the critic on this count convinces you that the reformers were scalawags because they failed to remedy this, you better make sure that the critic explains just how he would have done it better. So far as gross levels of regulation are concerned, uh, you may rest assured that Russia uh, has not been suffering any drought. Recently, Putin gave a speech denouncing the current permitting processes series of checkpoints for bribe delivery, which he called legalized extortion. I may say very, it's good to see the recognition of that, at least the vocal recognition of it uh, at that level. Another issue regulate, uh, relating to incentives for corruption uh, is the question of foreign trade. If stamping out a competitor by means of, of using the state apparatus uh, will leave you still subject to competition from foreigners, there's much less likely to be a payoff from it. Furthermore, of course, to the extent that you actually secure free trade, you eliminate one of the uh, sites of corruption, the import process itself. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that this characteristic of free trade is something which necessarily swamps all other arguments uh, relating to free trade in a reforming country, but it's a, a positive characteristic of free trade that I think very few people mention. Now, corruption in the judiciary. Uh, an, a well-functioning judi judiciary uh, in a liberal democracy requires a balance between accountability on the one hand and responsibility on the other. And widespread corruption obviously means we're falling a little short on accountability. If the only solution is less judicial independence, then you lose, or at least impair, an important building block for liberal democracy. Here, judges are very seriously constrained by norms that they bring to the job and that are enforced exclusively, well, almost exclusively, by very informal means. 
that makes it possible for us to make the trade-off between accountability and responsibility, accountability and independence, in a way uh, that puts huge weight on independence in the form of the marvelous protections of Article 3, without, un- without running too great, we hope, a risk of judicial irresponsibility. But obviously, the internalization of those norms can't happen overnight. Let me connect this to the what I said earlier about civil society. Uh, it's, there are findings that, in fact, you can increase the responsibility uh, of, and uh, less susceptibility to corruption of judges in developing countries uh, by having citizen networks that engage in spontaneous and open criticism of them. But this criticism is only effective, it appears, where there's already a substantial, a healthy civil society. The civil society can be seen there as having a direct impact on the way the institutions work. Now, what about reform from below? The, I think the, the, the key question you have to answer there in terms of individual incentives. As you know, uh, evolution in nature uh, works one by one. That is to say, a mutation prospers only if it increases the survivability of the individual with the gene viewed, the individual being viewed as a carrier of genes. In other words, the, the, mere, the proposition that a mutation would help his species isn't enough uh, to make the mutation prosper uh, because the fact that it helps the species doesn't make it get reproduced unless the person actually carrying this characteristic himself reproduces. Uh, now, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that uh, evolution, social evolution, uh, exactly tracks natural evolution. But I do think you have to ask the question, uh, what are the incentives person by person for uh, for changing one's habitual behavior. Um, for example, suppose you think that transparency in corporate governance is a good thing and that offering a rel- relatively transparent form would also have a potential advantage uh, in attracting capital because investors would be less anxious that minority shareholders would be ill-treated. But if the practice of corrupt courts makes it very hard to make binding promises of transparency, and if transparency would result in corrupt tax authorities focusing on you more than they otherwise would, obviously making this move is risky. The good news is that even in the face of these problems, people do make the change. Uh, a, A recent example in Russia is Yukos Oil, uh, controlled by one of the infamous oligarchs, which uh, adopted measures, internal measures. Of course, they can't guarantee enforcement, but they did uh, uh, follow clear accounting devices and try to bind themselves to greater transparency. Uh, and the result has been a hundredfold increase in their stock. More generally, there are two types of phenomena uh, that I think one has to look at in terms of assessing individual change. First, norm, norm entrepreneurs, and second, cascades. A norm entrepreneur is one who, either because of a deeper insight into the potentiality, uh, greater skill at realizing 
the benefits from a particular change norm, uh, somehow or other perhaps greater defense in case the bad risks turn out to be valid, uh, is willing to take the lead. Cascades is a closely related concept which turns on the, basically on the proposition that most people uh, don't spend a great deal of time thinking about things that they don't feel they have much control over. Uh, and so they're on the whole willing to follow the crowd. But they vary greatly in their readiness to follow the crowd. Some, the norm entrepreneur, are willing to go to take the plunge without uh, uh, any assurance that the crowd will follow. Uh, others are willing, willing to change their conduct if they see a couple of people doing it. And there are others who are slightly more resistant, but if 5% do it, will follow along, and so on. Ultimately, to the stick in the muds, will stick with the crowd, and only when the crowd has moved will they move. Uh, think of the East Europeans, uh, East Germans, uh, leaving East Germany via Hungary in 1989. Uh, certainly a, a cascade, if ever there was one. Um, so the, the, the problems collected, presented, uh, in terms of collective action, uh, and habits of mind are not insuperable. Uh, the current liberal democracies, after all, uh, somehow achieved the transformation. Now let me turn to remedies from the outside. And here I have uh, pointed to two approaches, uh, both summarized in slogans of the Eisenhower administration, people to people and trade not aid. I may say that I was a high school student when Eisenhower's presidency began, and I naturally thought that I had the answers and he was an idiot. Uh, but over the past 50 years, I've come to see it very differently. Um, first, on the on the people to people, he was talking of real relationships between Americans and citizens in these countries, and these can be either general rela- relationships between people, not as experts, but just as people uh, and experts. Uh, there's a lot to be said for concentrating on them on the young, where there's more malleability. Uh, I thought that Bill Badley's proposal of a hundred thousand scholarships to bring Russians over here uh, as students was a wonderful idea. Turning to trade, uh, this seems to me a an avenue for the transmission of modes of relating contract, trust, transparency uh, from a market democracy to a reforming society. Are there types of trade that have a downside Trade in the in raw materials, the products of extractive industries, seem to me somewhat doubtful. Extractive industries usually involve huge rents, which normally attract great corruption. And although I don't think that our buying tons of Russian oil uh, is deleterious, uh, I wouldn't expect any particular benefit of the sort that I'm talking about to flow from it. Let me then turn to uh, what I suppose every post-9-11 talk closes with, and that's uh, sort of reflections on the impact of 9-11 on all of this. I'd say that it's perfectly possible for a strong power to control what goes on in another country, uh, but to nurture the rule of law is quite different because the control itself is likely to stifle the development of healthy indigenous institutions. Uh, reform by decree is an oxymoron. What an interesting and, and fascinating lecture. 
I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope this inspires you to look back at Judge Williams's work, his writings and books and judicial opinions and articles and all the rest. What I really take away from this lecture, aside from its substance, thinking about Judge Williams, is this lecture really exemplified everything that made Judge Williams such a great, such a giant in the D.C. legal community and such a great person to be around. Just the sweeping breadth of his knowledge, the way he weaves together these themes of law and politics, both local politics and geopolitics, you really get in just this one lecture, a wonderful portrait of the lecturer himself. And so I hope it inspires you, like I said, to look up his other writings. And of course, I hope it inspires you to return for the next AEI Bradley Lecture podcast. So in the meantime, on behalf of my friend Carlin Bowman and all my colleagues at AEI, thanks for joining us.